This episode is brought to you by DailyDrip.com. Daily Drip makes keeping up to date on programming skills easier. You already know how much time it takes to find good resources and learn new languages. What if the hard part of that was already done for you? Sign up for Daily Drip and pick a topic that you want to learn about. Want to learn Elm? How about Elixir? Maybe you want to brush up on your CSS and HTML. Every weekday you'll get a short video or reading delivered to you via email. The best part is it only takes 5 minutes a day. Daily Drip has a special coupon code just for Functional Geekery listeners. If you sign up using the code KEYGREE, you'll save $9 on your first month, which means you can try out the Elm topic for free. Make learning a part of your daily routine with DailyDrip.com. Proctor, some conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. FBI 2016 is held in Minx. This year, the conference is focused on Scala, Clojure, Functional Approach to Kotlin, Reactive Programming on ClojureScript, PureScript, JavaScript, and TypeScript. Framework authors and active contributors to the technologies are among the speakers. Programs and tickets can be found at fby.by slash en. That's fby.by slash en. Lambda Days will be taking place again on the 9th and 10th of February 2017. Lambda Days is a -a one-of-a-kind experience in the functional world. The never-failing explosion of enthusiasm and talent is what gets them motivated to explore this amazing community and all of its potential. To Lambda Days, Scala, Erlang, Haskell, Elixir, F-Sharp, Lisps, Closer, and many other merging technologies are more than just languages. They are new perspectives on how to understand and tackle challenges of everyday work. The call for talks is open until January 1st, 2017, and make sure to keep an eye out on the site for when registration opens. Visit www.lambdadays.org to submit your talk and to keep updated as information becomes available. And if you would like a discount code, email contact at functionalgeekery.com or DM at Evan Geekery on Twitter for a code for 15% off ticket price. CatsConf 2 will be taking place in Dublin, Ireland on the 18th of February. CatsConf is a single-track, not-for-profit conference with hands-on workshops. With an amazing lineup already announced and the rest of the lineup to be announced soon, it looks to be an exciting conference. Visit catsconf.com, that's K-A-T-S-C-O-N-F dot com, for more information and to register. Closure D has been announced it will be taking place in Berlin, Germany on February 25th of 2017. Early bird tickets are currently available. For more information and to register, visit www.closurede.de. The day before Closure D on the 24th of February in Berlin, BobConf will be taking place. Bob has a strong focus on functional programming, and Bob is the forum for developers, architects, and builders to explore technologies beyond the mainstream and to discover the best tools available today for building software. With a keynote by John Hughes, their goal is for all participants to leave the conference with new ideas to improve development back at the ranch. For more information about the conference, visit bobconf.de. That's B-O-B-K-O-N-F dot D-E. Destination Code, a new on-conference starting in Utah, is having its inaugural event March 27th through the 30th of 2017. The on-conf brings energetic and seasoned mentors to the mountain village of Summit Powder Mountain, for sessions and workshops, worked into the day between ski sessions, farm-to-table meals, and an inspiring getaway. Visit www.destination.codes to find out more. Erlang and Elixir Factory 2017 is on the 23rd and 24th of March. The call for talks is now open and closes on January 8th at 11.59pm Pacific Standard Time. The factory includes a tutorials day on March 25th and training on the 20th through the 22nd and the 27th through the 30th of March. To submit your talks and keep updated with information, visit www.erling-factory.com slash sfbay2017. The FlatMap Oslo call for presentations is now open. FlatMap Oslo is the FP conference with a focus on Scala and the JVM taking place on May 2nd and 3rd in Oslo, Norway. Please go to 2017.flatmap.no slash cfp to learn more. Announcements and speakers are being done on Twitter at at FlatMap Oslo. That's F-L-A-T-M-A-P-O-S-L-O. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I'll be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Eros Proctor, and this week with us we have Jared Resch. 
Jared, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Hi, my name is Jared. I'm a, currently a PhD student at the University of Washington. I got my start uh, as a programmer when I started college. Before that, I wasn't really going to be a computer scientist at all. I got quickly addicted, and I've been hacking on programming language stuff the last couple of years. Almost all my projects have been about compilers in one way or another. And currently, I'm working on the Lean Theorem Prover with Leo DeMora at Microsoft Research, a couple of folks at CMU, and a couple of people at a few other institutions. And in the past, I've also worked on the Rust compiler and a couple other things. And you were referred to this podcast by a listener. And so I want to thank Aldebert for the recommendation. So let's start out with how you got into software, because he mentioned that you were doing some Haskell and Scala a little bit in undergrad before you got into the dependent types, as well as in the pre-call, you mentioned you had done some Ruby. So what did your software progression look like that got you to being interested from first in software to getting into dependent types and looking at how to make those more approachable? Yeah, so I think probably about, I guess it would be like six years roughly ago, I, when I started college, I had been really interested in studying music. And I didn't get into the schools that I wanted. And so I like had spent the summer before I went to college reconsidering what I wanted to do. And when I got to school, like I'd programmed a little bit when I was really young, but it was really hard. You know, it was kind of the early 2000s and there wasn't a lot of resources online and teaching yourself is sort of challenging. I struggled through learning to program. I'd kind of refreshed when I got to school. And like right around this time, January, in my first year of school, I started taking a programming class and I kind of got hooked. You know, it was like, I think in the first six months, I went from knowing like I couldn't write a function in C to, you know, knowing three or four different programming languages. Then I got my first job that summer and I kind of got hooked. One of the faculty, adjunct faculty was doing startup and he needed someone to just like write some code. And so I started to just show up and write C++. And then eventually I wrote like a web app for them in Rails. And that's how I learned Rails. And then I spent the next couple of years just working as a Rails programmer. Santa Barbara, for whatever reason, has a huge Rails population. There's tons of people doing Ruby on Rails. So there was a huge uh, number of jobs out there. And the money was pretty good. And I didn't have to find another apartment or move or anything. So I just started working for some companies. And that sort of was my start. And I spent the next couple of years like, programming a couple different languages, writing a crazy amount of Rails because I was getting paid to do it. And in that same intervening period, I kind of stumbled upon functional programming. And I think that sort of colored my next couple of years for sure. And what was that stumbling onto functional programming? If you're starting with Scala and Haskell as referenced in the recommendation, what prompted you to pick those up or what put those on your radar? Crazy enough, I was taking this. So a couple months after I started programming, I was taking some cloud class or something that we had. And there was a student in there who who I would interact with a lot over the next couple of years, but at the time was maybe 14 or 15 and already had started school a couple of years before I did. And he was crazy, like a crazy, amazing programmer. And he was really into Haskell. And at first he told me about it. I thought he was insane. It was like, let's write this web app that we're going to build in Haskell. And I was like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. This language looks really dumb. I hate this. Like, And then I tried to give it another chance over the summer and another chance, another chance. And eventually I just kind of, I sort of had this trifecta where I was learning Clojure and Scala and Haskell at the same time. And there's sort of synergistic effect where I would sort of pick up a concept in one and then transport it to the other two. And over three, four or five months, I sort of started to get a feel for how each one worked. And then to further it, like I think about him, I don't know, eight months later, one of my my undergraduate advisor, I ended up going on and doing research with for three or four years. He teaches his undergraduate PL class in Scala. And so I think that finally like drove the final nail into the coffin of like my functional programming addiction, where he taught the whole class in that. So I spent I don't know, three months writing Scala in his class. And then I went and did research with him and his whole lab was writing Scala. And then I went on to TA that class four or five times as an undergrad. And so I wrote a bunch of Scala for that. And I implemented assignments and programming languages and in parsers. And I think that really cemented it. Of course, the entire time I was still writing Ruby for money. So my day-to-day brain was still completely uh, dominated by writing Rails. And I know I've had other people just mention online that they're kind of in that world where they're still learning this. and maybe writing Rails. So what was that experience like as you were digging in with Clojure and Scala and Haskell while writing Ruby in day-to-day? Was that changing the way you thought about Rails? Was that... Oh, for sure. I mean, I think I had, and I mean, my friends can probably attest to this. I think 
I had some philosophical arguments about how to build things as I continue to go forward, just because as I my worldview changed, the way that we were building things and even just little things like mutability. I mean, I think it's a big thing. So like one of my best friends from college was working a closure startup in the last couple of years. But for before that was a Rails programmer like me. And I think that he's now back writing Rails again. His company got acquired. And so it's kind of interesting because as he's moved back, it's immutability, I think, is one of the biggest pain points of going back. So I think just the mutability argument alone was huge for me of like, all of a sudden, I don't have to reason about my frame of reference in mutation. I can just like drop in and locally reason. And I think that was a huge win for me as a programmer. I mean, even the way I wrote Ruby for the next couple of years is super influenced by this. Like I stopped mutating. I mostly used functional transformations. And also just like, I think functional programming opens up your mind to the world of using closures in really interesting ways. So I know that, especially in Ruby, because you know you can do a lot of this functional stuff still, I did a bunch of weird things with closures from then on. Like, for example, we built sort of a, a layer on top of a, an event loop because we were writing sort of a, what needed to be at the time a high-performance distributed system in Ruby. I wouldn't have implemented it in Ruby personally, but at the time, it was sort of a business requirement. And so we sat down to do it, and we... We did a bunch of cool things that I don't think I would have been able to do if I hadn't been doing a lot of functional programming. Sort of a job queue that had closures inside of it, and you iterate over the queue and compose all the closures together into single jobs, sort of future style stuff. And that was definitely like brought to mind for me by writing a lot of Haskell and Scala and, and such. And then the other part is, as you lead up to dependent types, you start in Ruby, which is a dynamic language. You played with functional dynamic with closure, and then you have some extent of a type system, depending on how much you played with Scala and push the bounds, but Haskell as well. And so where was that falling as along those lines for the love of types and moving towards dependent types? So I kind of got interested because I found that I was like in Ruby. So the company I was working for the, at the time, the application was probably about 350,000 lines of code and, you know, maybe 120 or so of it was code and 200,000 of it was tests, something like that. So I started to get into the weeds where, so one of the summers I worked for this company, I ported their entire application from Ruby 1.8 to 2.0 or 2.2 or something at the time. And so I had to go through all 300,000 lines of code. And so I found so many spots where simple invariants were impossible to enforce, at least dynamically, or you know you would get an exception or things would just break, string encoding, math. There's all kinds of examples that I ran into. And when I was debugging the unit test, I really started to develop like, this seems really bad. Like, why can't we do this better? Shouldn't it be easier for me to write down the invariants I care about? And at the same time, so sort of in parallel to me working at these companies, I was doing research in my research group at, at UCSB. And the group I was working in was pretty static analysis focused. So I was kind of getting exposed to a lot of these ideas about detecting and enforcing invariants. I was learning about type systems. And so it sort of kind of came together. And then I also started to mess around with sort of shapeless style programming in Scala where I was reading Miles stuff and I understood how it works. So I was like, all right, cool. I'm going to mess around and program some stuff in this. And I was able to encode some of the invariants that I've been like sort of stressed about at work in the type system. And that sort of was the genesis for me of like, oh, wow, I can actually enforce this without having to like write a unit test. I think that was really like a big moment for me of seeing, being able to see that like these sort of nice little local properties can be encoded really easily in the type system. And then you take your Ruby, you start migrating your Ruby, but eventually you make the jump into working on some of these more specific type systems. Yeah. So some of it was, I was about to graduate. I was looking for jobs. I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. And I was thinking about it and I hadn't, you know, I really enjoyed all the people I worked with. The company was great. I really liked all the people, but I didn't really like writing Ruby that much. And so I was kind of thinking about what I wanted to do. Some point in there, I'd been implementing type systems for the undergrad PL class, like many in Scala. So like one of our assignments was having students implement a, a couple type systems, a few logic programming languages. Somewhere in that space also, I was working a research project where we were trying to do sort of fuzzing of language implementations. When we, we started that, the idea was when you write a new programming language, in order to sort of achieve a large enough test suite to actually touch the surface area, it usually requires a huge amount of time because all the tests are manually written. So someone sits down and writes hundreds and hundreds of programs that should be rejected or accepted or should crash or whatever behavior you expect. 
And we were like, well, can we do this in an automated way? And so there's a lot of techniques in academic programming languages. Uh, people are probably familiar sort of in the quick check flavor of stuff where you, you know write down a sort of declarative test and you generate a bunch of examples and try it. So we wanted to do sort of that for language implementations. And so we built these tools to generate valid input programs, some in Scala, some in JavaScript, some in Rust eventually. And so to do that, we were essentially just implementing type systems in a logic programming language and using this as sort of our generator. And so I spent a bunch of time thinking about sort of these style of problems. And I think the confluence of all these things sort of started me thinking about type system implementation. I also really liked compilers. Like I'd been writing a compiler every couple of months, like a failed compiler every couple of months, because I would get, you know, halfway and I would I'd get stuck on something and start over or try something new. And I think that was also really transformational, like trying to write all these compilers sort of I, you know, hit all the stumbling blocks and I understood sort of how the pieces fit together. And then at the same time, I've been interested in Rust the entire time, but I'd sort of been waiting for like, you know, two or three years for it to materialize. And it kept seemingly to be always in beta. So eventually I ran into Nico Matasakis, who is one of the lead language designer people right now at Mozilla. Uh, He's done a lot of types of some work. And he and I met at Popple one year and we just hung out and talked and I ended up it took me, I think, six months before I started contributing, but I ended up talking with him and starting to hack on the language. And that sort of, I think, is the clear transition from when I stopped doing Rails stuff really at all. And I just started working on Rust, and then I ended up working for them the next summer. And were you writing Rust, or were you just writing... I'm unsure if Rust is actually bootstrapped in Rust at this point of when you're working on it. I think it is now, but... Yeah, so I think in about 2010 or 11... My timing might be slightly off. There's an inflection point actually relatively early on in Rust history where they went from OCaml, which was the original implementation language, into Rust. But that was a, an early version of Rust. So uh, the compiler actually suffers from this in many places where there's three or four year old pieces of code that were written in a different language, essentially, because Rust was just not the same language. And you sort of see these artifacts all over the place. But um, to answer your question, I was sort of splitting my time. I started hacking Rust programs again as it started to, as it sort of stabilized into its modern variant. I sort of wrote a version which never was finished because sort of other tools appeared, but I sort of wrote something like Rust Up, which was like a compiler tool chain manager in Rust. I was taking graduate operating systems. I wrote a file system in Rust. And those were sort of the couple of big programs that I started to play with. Later on, I would write a lot more Rust, but then I started working on the compiler directly because I was like, this is the kind of stuff I like programming. The type system seemed to have lots of interesting problems. Actually, backing way up, the original impetus was I really liked Rust, but it didn't have higher kind of types. And I was really sad about this back in like, you know, late 2013. So I started hacking on the compiler just randomly one day at Popple. And I had gotten them added to the AST and I started adding basic checking for them and everything. But then I met with Nico and we like I realized how complicated it was to actually add them in their full generality. So that was sort of my impetus for starting to work on Rust, actually, was I wanted higher kind of types, and I thought it would be cool. And I had, I had already flirted with contributing to GHC or Scala, and for various reasons, I just decided not to work on either of those and decided to work on Rust. And the reason I was asking, because I couldn't remember the transition of the timeline of Rust in Rust, was also, as you start writing Rust, and I've heard Rust is a couple of different things, and that it's taken some inspiration from Haskell, and that has gone back and forth at various levels throughout the year. So I was wondering how much of the functional aspects are you taking in and how much of the abstract data type stuff, since you said you started pushing that in into Rust and what was that looking like for anybody who hasn't played with Rust, but where does that fall on people who are interested in functional language? I've been kind of referring to it as like a love child between Haskell and C++. So I feel like if you're a hardcore C++ programmer or modern C++ programmer who uses things like, you know, resource acquisition is initialization, sort of the pattern of letting your destructors do all the cleanup for you. If you use smart pointers, that is things that don't require you to call new and delete everywhere. If you know, you use references, et cetera. I think Rust feels really familiar to you if you're a C++ programmer. There's also parts of it that I think feel really familiar if you're a Haskell programmer. But I think, well, just uh, sort of tangentially, one of the main reasons I, I liked it as a language was that it felt the most like functional programming that any low-level, like, fast languages ever felt, where I felt like I had a lot of control, and I knew when I was mutating, I knew when I wasn't. So, like, you know, in Rust, mutation is marked everywhere. 
If you have immutable reference, there can only ever be one owner of it. So it's sort of like ST in Haskell or Scala, uh, the ST monad, that is, where you do have mutation, but you're able to reason about the mutation. So you can do nice things in Rust, which would just be slow for no good reason in other languages, where you, for example, allocate a hash map. Like, you, you know, inside the function, I allocate a hash map, I mutate it, put a bunch of data in it, and then I return it, and then I use it immutably for the rest of my application. And the nice thing is I know the mutation is sort of scoped in this function, because everywhere else it's, it's immutably bound, and so I can't mutate it. And so I felt like, kind of on my earlier point, mutation was one of the big things for me that makes it hard to reason about traditional imperative programming, was that Rust sort of removed that. The other nice thing is like, you know, you get algebraic data types, so you can do pattern matching, you get type classes. So I feel like a lot of that ease is sort of the burden of things that I want. If I write Java or C++, like those are the things I feel like I miss the most. And the other thing is the ownership system is really cool because it it's another orthogonal extension of the type system where it's something that no one else had really implemented in a production language. So there's a bunch of research like Cyclone, sort of other region-based memory management systems that were research projects. They had a couple years of life and then everyone went on to do other things. But like Rust was like the first commercial or like production-ready compiler that was able to ship this feature. And so I think that was really interesting to me at the time too. And I was just starting to learn about the type theory behind it, how to implement them. So I was drawn to it for those reasons as well. Okay, and that gives a good rundown of Rust for me because I've heard a little bit and bits and pieces about it at a high level, but never actually checked it out enough because at this point, I don't do much low-level systems programming. Sure, yeah. And so a lot of people in the core team there are behind this message of like, we don't necessarily want Rust to be the hammer for every job, right? I think like it's got a targeted use case. And for me, I mean, I would love if people stopped writing C and C++. Like that's really my, I think, end game as a researcher right now is like figuring out ways to move people to reduce the advantages of C and C++ so much that people can move on to newer tools that are safer. Because so many security vulnerabilities are just due to bad programming model and nothing else. And so many just bugs, issues that programmers run into. So I think to me, that's like a huge push is just like, how do we come up with tools that provide all the things that people want from C and C++ control over memory allocation, predictable performance, et cetera, without having to use such like unsafe, quote unquote, languages. And that's why I was like, I haven't actually heard much about the functional programming aspect. And aside from has taken some inspiration from Haskell and wasn't sure where that was landed. So you're bringing a lot of the functional stuff when you were writing Rust, I assume. It sounds like there was a lot of good and I guess today it still is a lot of good ability to be able to pull it in. And it almost yeah. sounds like it's a Scala-esque where you can kind of take and pull in as much or as literal as you want, depending on which way you want to go. Right. So I think it's a little bit worse than Scala in terms of being able to accomplish like really hardcore functional programming. Like if you want to do completely monad transformers all the way to the bottom, you know, no var, no, no IO anywhere you're going to have a hard to near impossible time to do that in Rust. And I feel like you probably don't even want to graph that onto the language. But I mean, in terms of like the way the standard iterator class, sorry, trait is structured, uh, it's very functional. You know, it exposes all the typical transformations. The control over mutability to me is very functional and a lot of the like concurrency structures. So the nice thing in Rust is there's little things like you can enforce in the type system whether an object is safely transferable between threads. So these sort of invariants are really rich. And to me, it's like, I think that's actually more important than being functional or not almost. It's like, or to me, that's sort of the essence of why we like, to me, why I cared about being functional was it gave me reasoning. And so as long as I get reasoning one way or another, like I'm fine programming imperatively if I can still reason easily about programs. I think the problem often, or like right now is it's sort of often you, you get full control and you give up some ability of reasoning or you have like a nice, simple functional language that's easy to reason about and you give up control and performance often. And you're like reliant on ScalaSD or GHC or whatever, giving you optimizations to make it fast. So I think there's a little bit of tension there in, in most languages. In Rust, I didn't feel that as much tension. Like every time I know exactly when I'm copying data, you can do really cool things like zero copy parsing, and I was not like, I didn't know how to do that in any other language but C. And with C, I have this like immense sense of paranoia and fear that I'm, I'm doing something wrong. And you start digging into these types and you're looking at adding them to, you're looking at adding these abstract data types and algebraic data types into Rust. So they already had algebraic data types. What I actually ended up really working on was 
was more the trade system. So like the type class part. So when they first started, the type classes were actually like pretty weak. They were like really similar to the original Haskell type classes before they got any extensions. So the first thing I actually implemented was where clauses, which is sort of the ability to add arbitrary constraints on methods and traits and everything. So you can now say stuff like you can only call this method if the type of the argument implements clone, which is the the trait that allows you to copy a piece of data. Or I can add this extra method if you happen to implement the addable type class or something like that. And so that was the first thing I really worked on. I spent a bunch of time working on inference. I added type macros. I ported a patch from Darren. And so I, that's sort of the kind of hacking I did was a lot on the type system. I never even, we never really got to higher kind of types. There's still conversation of it going on. I think it's just really complicated in Rust because of the way the type class system has been implemented. But I was kind of pushing for stronger. So I feel like there's sort of a couple different, not factions, but like some people, like my friend Alexi, who wrote the Rust collection library and is now working at Apple on Swift. He was much more of an imperative programmer and like hates functional programming. So like I was, I felt like I was much more of a functional programmer and arguing to do things in a more functional way. So I think that Rust is the nice especially in the people working in the language, has a nice ecosystem of, of people with different points of view. And so Russ is sort of the averaging of, of those points of view. And you start pulling in some of these advanced type features as much as you can into Rust. So what prompted the move into fuller dependent types and how was that exposure? Yeah, so I, I guess I left out one thing that I forgot to talk about in the pre-interview was that so I, I've been programming independent types. There was another research project that's nestled somewhere in this timeline where I had been doing some computer architecture and I'd been working with uh, one of the computer architecture faculty at UCSB. He was super frustrated with the ability to reason about programs running at a really low level or running about reasoning about the architecture itself. So we had started sort of doing a series of sort of prototypes and talking about kind of what could we do in the space that would be interesting as a research project. And so at the time, and this paper is going to actually just appear this year at ASPOS, which is a conference. It's part architecture, part programming languages, part operating systems. And the paper that we did was we built a functional chip. So it took us you know, nine months to iterate to this. But we started with this functional chip that essentially was like a Lambda calculus machine. And we iterated on this over and over again. The thing I did, or one of the things I did, was write a compiler from Idris to the chip. And so we were able to build this functional chip. We eventually got it down to like three instructions. Essentially, you can allocate things, you can call functions, and you can pattern match. And those are the three primitive pieces of functionality in the machine. And so we were able to compile Idris to this and run dependently typed programs. My friend and collaborators continue to work on this after I left UCSB. So the newest thing is that we build a pacemaker application for it. And so we wrote and verified a little pacemaker application on this chip. And so I think this project, too, kind of pushed me over the edge where I was like, I saw how Rust was able to write really cool low-level system software for like day-to-day programmers right now by using sort of not old research ideas, but like the last 10 years or 15 years of research. And I was like, well, in my research, like how do we push to the next level, which gives us more reasoning, more control, more ability? Because like with Rust, you get really simple invariants, right? Like you can ensure that this thing's mutable or not mutable. You can say this thing has been copied. It's not shared. But what if you want to write down something really tricky, like a non-interference property, for example, like these two threads never share data. Let's say I'm processing two user requests. And I want to show that there's no interference between two user requests. Or if I want to implement a web browser and I want to prove the web browser never leaks information from Google to my bank or from my bank to malicious site number one. And so that's kind of how I, I started to move in its direction. And it felt like dependent types was one direction that I could kind of go. I mean, and a lot of people in the research community are doing this, of course. And this is a chip as in physical hardware that you're also working with. So you're taking this Idris code and actually putting it into some sort of machine instruction that actually runs on physical hardware? Yeah, so we didn't fabricate the chip because it's really expensive. Only a couple of people actually do this. It's not clear that it's actually like the right good to do in research. The thing that most people do is take an FPGA. So like for those who don't know, it's a field programmable gate array. The idea is it's sort of a reprogrammable chip. So you can design a chip on your computer and you can like flash this FPGA into the shape of the chip that you want and then run it on hardware. It's a little bit slow. It's, it's actually probably a lot slower than actually fabbing a chip, but it gives you a good proxy to, to understand area, power consumption, et cetera. 
So that's what we did is we, we got it running on FPGA. And the idea was reasoning about x86, for example, is really challenging. This processor is super complicated, has tons of features. And so oftentimes I want to like, you know, sort of run something from the ground up. I want hardware that I can reason about. I want a low level kernel. I want an OS stack. But the problem is at the hardware level is like people build these monolithic, massive chips. And like reasoning about x86, like as a whole is near, nearly impossible. And so we were trying to just say like, can we build something that's fast enough to execute the things that we care about, but way easier to reason about? And it turned out that we did. And it's, it's much lower, like 20x slower or something, but it's fine. Cause like we can meet, for example, with the pacemaker, you can meet a real time guarantee. So it's like, if we can execute in the interval or the window that you actually need to execute in to do something in real time, then our sort of feeling is that it's possible that it's a good enough trade off to say, I'll give up some performance for some reasoning ability. Um, you know, and people obviously probably disagree about this, but that's sort of how one exposure. So I spent a bunch of time writing in Idris backend. So, you know, it was like three or 4,000 lines of Haskell code that went from Idris's intermediate representation all the way down to this machine code that we created. And the funny thing, or this is sort of a funny tangential thing, is that my roommate was actually Edwin's student and worked on Idris and wrote the Idris Erlang backend. So for a while, like two of the five people in the world that had written Idris backends or whatever the number is, were living in the same house, which I thought was kind of funny. And that seems like it'd be an interesting trade-off to have for certain classes of problems. As you mentioned, the pacemaker, where you want real-time, it doesn't have to be the best performance as long as it meets a good performance level, but you right. want that. But you want to know that this pacemaker is absolutely going to work. And that's the kind of applications that we really care about, or like at least I care about personally, is like this really like low level, high assurance stuff where you really care and you're willing to put X amount more energy as a human being into building this thing. And you really just want it to work. And pacemakers too these days, it's like pretty, I mean, when you start to look into how a lot of this software that the world runs on is constructed, is frightening. You know, it's like some small embedded chip, they write some C code on it, they run the C code on it. You know, some of them have plain text protocols over Bluetooth. So I can essentially, I can, if I reverse engineer the protocol or I find the manual for it, I can just walk around with an iPhone app sending stop messages to people's hearts. And, you know, when you're living in that kind of world or like, for example, some of my lab mates have been working on verifying a medical application. So in the medical school at UW, there is a gamma laser that shoots like high speed neutrinos or whatever as salivary cancer. So the idea is they target at your head and they shoot this beam at 30% of the speed of light or whatever it is, and they kill the cancer. But it's running like on some 1980s chip, running a programming language written in C by physicists. And so, you know, the whole thing is sort of like duct taped together or like, that's my feeling. So the idea is like they've been doing this, which is really awesome work, throwing formal methods at it to, to find bugs and make sure that it works correctly so you don't kill anyone. And then you get into these dependent types and you get the exposure to Idris. You've played a little bit with some cock and you're getting into dependent types. What was that first transition looking like? You've had the Haskell experience, but did dependent types make sense to you? Or was that something that you still had to get your head wrapped around at that point when you were starting to do these formal proofs? So I think the biggest challenge was lack of mentor or like lack of teacher. I mean, the thing is, it's this challenge that I think even the Haskell communities felt Scala, I know the Scala community kind of was talking about this stuff recently about getting newcomers sort of onboarded, but it's sort of complicated. There's tons of information out there and you could spend a lot of time reading the wrong stuff. So, you know, you could go out and spend a bunch of time understanding really deep meta-theoretic sort of proofs about the theory itself and to try to understand it. Or you could go just try to like verify stuff, which might mean you don't understand it. So that's the thing that I found the hardest is I tried to read software foundations by myself bunch of times. I tried to read Adam Chapala's book, Certified Programming with Dependent Types, a couple times by myself. And it was sort of always residual. I implemented a small dependent type checker in Haskell. It was a couple hundred lines, small, like little thing, but that didn't really give me the full understanding because it's just so deep. And then when I moved to UW, I've spent a, over a year hanging out with a bunch of really great cock hackers, type theory. And so I've learned just a bunch by osmosis by them. So when I was starting, it was still Two years, three years ago, I feel like I was really naive compared to, to my understanding now. So I think the main thing is just finding the right resources. But the way I started was just essentially just sitting down to work on this project I've been working on for the last couple of months. 
And I just now I've written 50 or 60,000 lines of cock. I've gotten kind of my my hands on it uh, and I really understand how it works now. But my main frustration has been the last. So this is kind of where I started working on lean was I've just been super frustrated with the tooling. It's like having come from Rust, which to me still is like a pinnacle of how to build infrastructure around the language. All the message boards are well set up. You know, the mailing list, the community teams, the website, the release process, the release tooling. We have like an amazing tool called Crater, for example, in the Rust community that was built. And it allows you to take all the publicly published Rust code and do a differential build on the compiler. So like when I was working on type inference, every time I would change type inference, I could build the entire ecosystem and see if I broke anyone. And like those kinds of tools are amazingly powerful for doing development. And then just like the little things like Cargo's awesome, the documentation tool is great, compiler error messages are awesome. And then I moved to Cock, and it's like, it's an academic project developed by a small number of people over many years. It's a 20 or 30 year old repository. It's got a lot of man hours in it, but there's just things like the error messages aren't great. The editor mode has been pseudo unmaintained for a long time. I think it's now being actively maintained. So just like kind of moving from this really highly polished development experience to the sort of this rough one, which is really disheartening. So in the beginning of the year, I was just kind of in my free time, mostly on my bus rides to and from work, I started to write a, my own independently typed programming language, which I think helped really get my understanding sort of solidified. And that I think was a huge sort of like push for me of like, just implement everything and just try to understand it. And yeah, I, maybe I didn't quite answer your question though about kind of, understanding the type theory. I think you did. And that was more the route of how you came in and started to approach understanding this. And after you've taken these learning experiences and you mentioned there's a lot of information out there, some of it bad, some of it good, some of it completely tangential. Yeah. Tangential, I think is more than bad. Like it's good information. It just might not be the thing that you're actually interested in, you know? And so after you've gone through this experience and you've even had to learn through writing your own, looking at this now, is there any good resources for people who are looking at type system? I know Edwin Brady has a book out, but is there any other good stuff that you would recommend for get people getting into dependent types? Yeah, so I think Edwin's stuff is really good because he's sort of tacking it as like the day-to-day programmer. Like that was my understanding the last couple times I looked at his book of like how to go from programming other languages to programming in Idris. I think though the, so the lean group, those of us working on lean have two books. One of them is done or like done still, I mean, obviously being worked on, but sort of exists in its full form, which is sort of the tutorial for the language. But that one's really focused on more doing theorem proving and understanding it as a system. So I think that one's a good intro, but we're trying to work on sort of programming in lean, sort of understanding lean as a programming language. And I hope that in a couple months, that's going to be polished enough that we can recommend that. People are working on it. Adam Chapala is now working on a new book, but his is more targeted doing systems verification. It's called FRAP, Formal Reasoning About Programs. I like Adam's book a lot. I just think that if you're, you know, never done any functional programming, you sit down and that's going to be the one way that you learn, learn how to program, you're going to have a really hard time going from like zero to 60. So I think Edwin's book is really good. But other than that, there's not that many high quality resources. Again, if you want to understand the core type theory, there's a couple of cool tutorial papers that are really awesome. But I think the big gaps, a lot of these systems present them without inductive types, which are sort of the algebraic data types of, uh, of dependent type theory. And those are where all the like magic is. Like that's where you get equality from and you get all these, you know, you get vectors and all this cool stuff. The core theory by itself is not that interesting because it has like functions and function application. So I think it's a little bit harder for people to digest the programming language. And I think more examples of, of using as a programming language. The other thing that I found, and, and this is maybe controversial for some people, is that like I actually don't program with dependent types very much. So like when I write cock code, I almost write all of my code in the ML fragment. And then I tend to prove extrinsic proofs about my code if I'm going to write a proof. So it might be like I might define a function and then I'm going to prove separately, not tied to the function. The function always returns an even number. Or I might have a particular invocation of a function that returns an option. And then I'm going to prove that that option type is always sum. That there's no way for you not to return a value from it. And what I found is that this makes code actually a lot simpler to write because you essentially just write ML, you write Haskell, whatever you're used to. And then you use the program that you wrote and the invariants that exist in the program in order to prove that the thing that you care about actually holds. And I think this is sort of something that I did not understand how to do. 
when I started looking at dependent type theory. Like I thought everything was going to be like, we're going to have this thing return some dependently type structure that intrinsically, like a vector, where a vector intrinsically says, I only have NN elements. The extrinsic version of it would be you write a function that returns a list and you prove that the length of that list is always equal to five or something like that, where the intrinsic version would be you always return a vec of length five. And so sort of understanding how to use these tools is big to me. One other challenge I think it's really large that we've been trying to tackle a little bit, and, and maybe as we talk about Lean, we'll go more into this, is like providing tools to do programming. So like if you write Cock, you can't use it as a programming language right now, at least without a lot of setup. In the default language, there's no way to do I.O. There's no file system library. There's no networking library. And so, you know, you drop in and you want to write a real program. There's a huge amount of setup to get started. You have to learn how extraction works, which is the process by which you take a cock program and turn it into an OCaml program. And you need to learn how to write some OCaml shims to, to replace some stuff. And it's really, to me, too complicated to ask someone to sit down and, like, learn how to use all this machinery to write Hello World. So one thing that I'm trying to do with Lean is make it so that we ship a real standard library so that you can essentially write Haskell, import system.io, you know, put string, hello world, done, and everything works. And this sounds like a perfect transition to get to Lean, but I do have one question before we jump into Lean. Sure. Just a little bit more clarification because we've talked dependent types in the past and people have referenced wanting to understand and look at dependent types and they've talked about how they've on their own have gone and done it. And we've talked a little bit about what they are, but one thing I've left out is for clarification is if you, as you've looked into dependent types, are they something that becomes functional language specific or are dependent types really something more general and would be applied to object oriented languages or other imperative languages? Or is this something that kind of is inherently tied to functional programming languages in the way they think about the world? So I think that one thing preliminary, I guess, is so dependent types is super overloaded in the sense that there is sort of a spectrum of dependent types. It's not really like one flavor. So there's the really theoretical stuff like the like new Perl, where like John Perl and a bunch of modern uh, approaches are sort of in this spectrum. And this is sort of called computational type theory. There's sort of what I refer to as dependent types, which is like Cox style dependent types. So calculus of constructions. And then there's sort of in-betweens and there's and there's some things that people call dependent types that some people might feel that are not dependent types, whatever. I don't want to get into that argument. But more so that I think because there exists a spectrum, you can find all kinds of interesting ways to apply them. It's just that I think because the challenge becomes is that if you want to use the same language for proving and programming, the proof language needs to be pure and total because otherwise you can do sort of unsound things in the proving fragment. If I write an infinite loop, that allows me to prove anything. And so that's a big problem if you want to like emit imperative constructs in your proving language. And so I think that they're totally applicable. It's just you probably end up losing some of the uniformity because you have to do some phase distinction where like some imperative constructs can't appear in proofs, but they can appear in programs. And I can reason about those programs, but I can't use those programs to actually construct proofs. And so I think this sort of stuff is an active, sort of still active research. But I've seen like some cool applications of very like simple dependent types. There was a type system for Bitcoin that someone did recently. I think it's called Typecoin. And that one allowed you to have some programs that were just dependent on on numbers. So you could say like this program is going to take 10 coins and return five coins. And you could put that in the type system. And what they did is they were able to use this to express contracts and more complicated things. The other thing you can do is you can sort of do like what the F-star guys are doing where imperative constructs are sort of de-sugared in these proof obligations where they're checked for you behind the scenes. You know, so like in F-star, you can use mutable state and you can do a loop and you can do imperative things and they translate them into the appropriate proof obligations and prove them. And so like in Cock, there's sort of analogous things. The way people tend to do it is you embed sort of an imperative language inside of Cock and you write imperative programs. But I don't think there's any reason why not. You could just imagine that instead of embedding an imperative language, the imperative language just becomes Java or whatever language you would like to program in. And you do the proof sort of on the side. The main challenge here is that I think to make this a lot of the more complicated approaches uh, manageable is that you need automation. Otherwise, the sheer burden of doing this for normal programmers, I think, is just too great. And I think this is really our biggest challenge right now is 
we've finally shown, you know, it's taken 20 or 30 years of a research agenda to show that this kind of stuff is, is viable in reality. And I think the next push is to push it from viable to pragmatic. And that really requires automating most of it so that people can sit down and give a high level argument for why their program is right. And then immediately get feedback and say, oh, cool, it's right or it's wrong. Because like right now, you know, it's especially in these manual assistants, it's very, very tedious to do this by hand. So I guess in a simple way, I think it's totally possible to bring dependent types to imperative languages or object-oriented languages. It's just a matter of design and sort of understanding what you want. There's also some challenges, right? Like in the functional world, it fits really well because if I have a vector of length five and I try to update its length, what happens to its type? So now the types need to change when I make updates to the data structure, which is kind of a bizarre or, you know, at first pass sort of a bizarre idea, right? Like cons or a pen is now going to change the type of the thing that I, that I append to and how to come up with a model that's sound and works well to do this, I think is a, is a still like active research area. This kind of leads into lean as well. And some of the reasons I was thinking about that was the approachability and accessibility of being able to get dependent type systems wherever they may fall, as opposed to going to some of these other languages that you said at this point don't have the tooling, have to do a lot of work around, and how much it could be pulled into other things that are out there today. But as you're looking at building this tooling with Lean as well, what is some of that looking like of making this dependent types accessible and approachable to others? Right. So at a high level... I was saying earlier that I started to program my own dependently typed language earlier in the year. So I started working this thing that I was calling hubris because I felt like it was an act of hubris to think that you could do this better than anyone else. To build a compiler for dependently typed language, providing a compiler. I mean, so this is my main beef with extraction style systems is essentially what they do is they just take the cock AST, they turn it into some ML-ish language and they pretty print it into OCaml. You're essentially at the bottom level, everything's like stringly typed. And if you want to like replace functions in their theory, like, for example, my friends who do distributed systems verification, they had a bug where max was not being properly extracted or something. So like max on natural numbers is like exponential in the size or something like that, because you have to compare each constructor application. So max was taking a crazy amount of time to run when they really wanted to be calling int.max. And when they replaced it, I think everything got like 40% faster, some ridiculous number like that. But replacing it requires you to like put some OCaml code somewhere or paste a string. And, and I got really frustrated with this because like I love the idea of being able to, Idris has this for sure, but Idris hasn't had traditionally, and things might've changed in the last couple of months. I haven't worked on it in a while or looked at it in a while. Didn't really have the powerful tactic language that Cock had. There's things in Cock that I don't know how to do in Agda and Idris just because the automation allows me to be way more productive. And so I was like searching for a tool that sort of married the best of both of these worlds. And since it's still sort of an active research area, also efficiently compiling it, them is still an active research area. I was like, all right, I'm going to hack on one just for fun and figure it out. But in the time I was hacking on it, I, I met with Leo Demora. And so Leo is very well known in the PL community, at least, for being the one of the lead authors of Z3. So Z3 is an SMT solver. And SMT is actually sort of the forefront of automated reasoning. People use this to do all kinds of really cool things. For example, one of my lab mates, has a tool that he's been working on that uses SMT to generate CSS just based on image layout, which is really, really cool. But it uses the solver itself is incredibly complicated and it's solving this like MP hard problem of three sat. So Leo is really good at coming up with this crazy automation. And three or four years ago, he got hooked on dependent type theory and he started building this proof assistant. And so I had been like kind of inspired by it and been talking with him and he came to visit us one week and we just talked for an hour or two. And then I decided, like, instead of working on my own thing, I should work with him. And so I just quit working on mine and started working with him. And I spent a bunch of time developing ideas. So I essentially just imported my ideas over to working on Lean. So the things I've sort of been working on over there is the main thing is that we've been pushing really hard on a native code generator. So the idea is to integrate a normal compiler backend right into the language, understand all of the standard libraries and everything, and compile them correctly, as well as allowing users to extend it with new primitives, new system libraries, et cetera. So I've been working really hard on that. The other thing is we're trying to push on like having all the standard tooling you would expect. So error messages still need a lot more work, but we want to have really good error messages. There's a doc tool coming. We have a debugger. We have a profiler. And a lot of these are the tools that have been missing. So like in Cock, for example, I've been having performance issues. And I know other people suffer from these as well. And there's no way to figure out what's the hotspot or where it's going wrong. 
So we're kind of pushing on. We want it to have all the tools that you would expect. The other big difference in Lean compared to these other tools is that Lean is written in C++ and everything else is written in OCaml or Haskell or functional programming language. And I know people are probably, if they're listening to this, like freaking out because like I know when I talk to a couple other people who are functional programmers, the fact that we're writing in C++ seems to be off-putting. But the reasoning is sort of is this allows us to push the tool's performance as high as possible. Like we want to make sure that the automation and the standard tooling is fast. And it's harder to do this, at least in our experience, in Haskell or OCaml than it is to do in C++. So this is sort of where we're at with the tool. And so all this is sort of culminating in a, a big release that we hope to release at the beginning of the year or right after the beginning of the year. And as far as lean, the language goes, what is the... 30,000 foot view. You talked about wanting to bring in the developer tooling, bring in the environment for building stuff, and you're wanting it to be a full-fledged language that you can actually develop stuff in. Right. Can you give an overview of Lean itself more than just it's dependently typed? What is some of the philosophy around the language itself and not just the tooling? So I think one of our big philosophical differences or like one of the things that I think is unique for us is the emphasis on scripting Lean in Lean. So this is sort of like we're taking this meta development approach really seriously. So for example, the lean compiler that compiles lean to native code is written in lean itself. The lean tactic language is lean itself. So if you want to write a proof procedure, you just write a normal lean program. You can declare attributes the language and the proof assistant or language proof assistant understands in lean itself. The debugger is available in lean itself. The documentation tooling is available in lean itself. So you can like in the tactic language ask Given any symbol, what is the documentation for the symbol? What is its arity? What is its type? And so the idea is it's sort of like we've exposed the internal prover interfaces directly in Lean. So the whole thing is scriptable. And the idea is that what we can do is we can allow this like high-level scripting point of view. So like Lean is a virtual machine. And to back up, so I guess I should – so Lean at a high level essentially is just a Haskell or you know ML-style language. There's high-level definitions. And – the high-level definitions can take arguments, they have a return value, and they have a term that's a body. The term language of programs is pattern matching, function calls, the, sort of the standard functional stuff you would expect. We have monads, we have functors in the standard library, do notation, we have the bracket dollar sign stuff, all sort of all the familiar operators that a Haskell programmer would be used to. The normal fragment of the language is pure and total, so all programs that are pure, all programs terminate. And so you might say this is really restrictive, and it sort of is, but we also added support for the pattern match compiler. So when you write a pattern match in Lean, you're not actually writing a pattern match. It gets elaborated down to some primitive construct. And so we have a bunch of strategies to try to ease the burden of programming a total language. So for example, we try to use different strategies for proving termination on the pattern matches. So it, I think it makes the programming language more convenient to program in. The other thing is that when you're doing the meta-level programming, like writing tactics, and taxes can sort of be viewed as macros as well. That's sort of how I view it. It's just sort of a fancy macro system. The idea is at sort of like compile time to build a term. And the thing is that with those, we allow the ability to add the meta keyword to definitions in Lean. And so when you add the meta keyword, it actually turns off all the totality restrictions. So you can just write essentially Haskell at that point. So if you're writing automation, you can drop into this nice language that is completely has arbitrary recursion, pattern matching, type classes, and so on and so forth. So just briefly about the type classes, we also have a full type class system. So it's like you can declare pretty much any type class you, you can imagine. They support dependent types. So you can have type classes that contain values and are selected based on the value they contain. And so that's sort of, I think, a 30,000 foot view is like we want it lean to be scriptable and lean itself is sort of just like a high level functional language that has dependent types. And then in the theorem proving world, we have uh, automation language and we have a lot of powerful automation coming. So Leo sort of this is his area. He's working in, in automated theorem proving sort of technology for like 10 years. And so they're pushing on this stuff or he's pushing on this stuff a lot. OK, and I think that gives at least enough inspiration about the language and some context for people who might be interested in checking it out and getting a sales pitch for why and when link then. Right. And I think the main thing, too, is that or like as a compared to all these other all the other proof assistants is that we want to use all the native code generation facilities to make it so that 
the programs you write in Lean to automate the prover and both the programs and the prover are as fast as possible. So like the goal really is to generate like C quality code from Lean. And so me and Leo have a bunch of ideas about how to do this. This is sort of one of my current uh, research directions is pushing on the performance and trying to make it so that you can write C level code and then reason about it or C level performance and then reason about the programs that you write. But I think the learning materials are actually pretty good. That's one thing I'll say is I think the tutorial. So Jeremy Avogad, who is a professor at CMU in the philosophy department, has been teaching a course in Lean for a couple semesters now. And so he has like a book on sort of getting started, which I think has been pretty well developed at this point. So that's like one nice way to get started. But there's also talk of maybe offering a course at Stanford doing the same thing. I mean, that's sort of where we're at is just trying to push adoption and kind of get people, other people to work on it. There's maybe roughly six or seven of us working on it, but also be full-time. There's some people who were working on it full-time who are now using it in projects. So like Daniel Selsum, who's at Stanford, has been doing a bunch of like verified machine learning stuff in it, but he was working on the tool this summer and, and before that. And then we're getting close on time, but I want to make sure we at least cover and bring up, you had a PLD paper that you were talking about that's being submitted. And do you want to give a quick overview of that so people can kind of just check out some more information and give a high-level overview before we have to wrap up? Yeah, of course. So my, my main stuff has been doing, like, I, I mean, hopefully my sales pitch has sort of got that across. Is it, The main idea is to do sort of low-level programming that we can reason about and push on that a lot. So, but yeah, so the idea is with that tool is that in the kernel often there is so the way that people do extensibility in general is that they embed programming languages into bigger systems. And so the Linux kernel actually has this interface that has evolved over like 20 years called eBPF, which is the extended Berkeley packet filter. And the thing here is that they've essentially written an arbitrary programming language that allows people to script the kernel. And so today it's being used to implement security policies. It's being used to implement uh, performance monitoring. There's a bunch of cool posts that keep showing up on Hacker News from this guy, Brandon Gregg who like shows how to build flame graphs and the kernel and stuff like that. And it's that kind of stuff I think is really cool. The other thing is like Chrome uses this to do security sandboxing. So like it ensures that your Chrome tabs like can't escape and like read or write to your file system or, you know, intercept network traffic or do things like that. But the problem is it wasn't fast enough because they had an interpreter to start. So they've implemented a JIT compiler. So there's this JIT compiler that runs in the kernel and it generates arbitrary x86 code based on your input program and then jumps to it and starts executing. And so th this project is sort of how do we build a compiler that is zero outside dependencies that can execute in the kernel and sort of ensure that certain properties are respected. Specifically, there's no denial of service, so the kernel doesn't crash, that we guarantee termination. So like you can't just cause the kernel to spin infinitely, you know, just sitting there executing your filter over and over again. And it's really important too, because these are executed on every event where an event might be like a packet receipt. So if you're running like a big machine with a huge network card and you're like, you know, receiving gigabytes of traffic, it starts to get really scary if you're, you know, on every packet you're executing a program and they behave badly. So this is sort of the high level pitch. And sort of a lot of the stuff that I'm working on Lean is motivated by doing this huge project. I mean, it's been me and a, a really awesome undergrad working on this project for 10 months full time. And it's it's been hard to figure out how to actually like implement this thing and, and get it to work. And so a lot of the theorem proving experience we've had has come back into building this tool because our thing is like real in the sense that you know, we linked it in the Linux kernel, it runs. And like a lot of the theorem proving communities have this gap where you go from like the model and thing you build to executable end product, which is runnable, deployable, whatever. And the cool thing is ours is just a drop and replacement. You know, I think we need a 140 line patch or something like that to enable ours in the kernel. And you can even run it uh, next to the existing one and see the results and compare them. So it's been a pretty cool project. And is this using Lean or is this some other? No, it's completely done in Cock. Just because when I started it, that was what I started working in. The goal is to move on to Lean to use some projects next. I mean, so the thing is, we've been in a really big development period for the last like six or eight months. There's a branch that Leo and a couple of us have been working on that's nearly, I don't know, 2,000, 2,500 commits ahead of Master at this point. So we have a huge release coming. Um, there's been all kinds of cool stuff. Gabriel, who works on that tool as well, has built like a whole like parallel incremental build system. So like when you're in Emacs or we actually have Atom support now and I'm working on a VS Code plugin as well. When you launch into one of these, if you change file B and you're working in A, the whole thing will reload. It will retype check. It will give you autocomplete information. It will highlight. You can run the debugger. And so that's sort of the, the goal we're going for is 
full IDE experience offered by the tool. We're getting there. We're sort of pushing on it slowly. So there's a lot of that stuff kind of coming. There's a doc tool coming as well. We just started work on that in the last couple of days. And we're doing a tutorial popple in January. And so the idea is that we'll probably release a bunch of materials around then, new reference manual, documentation, probably the new version, or soon thereafter. The idea is we, I think we all agree that it's not ready for like consumption by other people. And obviously, there's probably tons of things that people will want to report or have changed or, or modified or whatever. But it would be nice. Um, also, people are interested. One way to get started is just show up and start contributing. I know that we're happy to like mentor people working on this stuff. I mean, that's definitely how I got my started or start on all this stuff. It's like people helping me out, mentoring me. So if people are interested, that's a good way to get started. And the question is coming down to, as you mentioned, your chip you were talking about and researching where you were looking at a pacemaker. And if you're doing this stuff in cock of having these things that you're going to try and target lean towards specifically. So I think that with lean, the goal would be that if someone wanted to build an embedded system, program it, verify it and then run it, they would be able to do it without having to modify the tooling. Because like, for example, with Idris, no fault of Idris, just that I needed a new backend and there was no like, there's no low level garbage collection free way to generate code. And so I think a lot of our goals are sort of focused on this is Microsoft in general has been funding multiple. I think that Nick talked about the TLS stuff a little bit, but there's a lot of interest inside the company of how to deploy these tools to real programs. And I think in general of like, how do we, you know, AWS now has a formal methods team, Apple does. Um, and I think people care a lot about certain pieces of critical infrastructure. Like AWS, for example, they care about distributed system stuff. Like is EC2 going to fall over? Is S3 going to fall over? And so I think that there's a sort of new increased interest in how to deploy these things in reality and sort of shrinking what I like to call the formality gap, sort of the separation between people doing formal modeling and, and thinking and actually building systems. And so like my my vision, at least right now, and I think a lot of people in my research group have the same vision, is like shrinking this to the point where you model, build, verify, deploy in one single step. And it's it's reasonable to do this. The Daphne people at Microsoft Research have been really great about this. They have like fully formally verified implementation of Paxos, for example, and some distributed systems infrastructure on top. And the annotation burden for them, proof to code, is only like two to three X, I think, in that range. So, you know, it's like right in the range of how much work people put into testing. So I think we're sort of like the goal is to move all these tools into that sweet spot. Because like right now in COC, it's not in that sweet spot. It's 10x, 100x can be really bad just because they made on a manual effort. And then have you actually targeted anything or is there any vision in the way that you mentioned Daphne and F-Star was targeting the TLS and Project Ever stuff? Does Lean have anything around that that it's specifically trying to target first that people can go check out and see? how it's being used and applied in an example? Yeah, so I think that's our next goal. Is like Leo and I have been, and Gabriel and Sebastian and Jeremy and all the other people and Daniel who have been working on it have all been working on, I think we everyone used the tool for a couple months and we kind of came together and we all have various things that we decided need to be better before we were like happy with the way the tool was, at least as like an initial release. So I think the goal is get all this stuff out the door in early winter and then pick a keystone project that we're going to implement in Lean. I'm not sure, 100% sure what that is. There's been talk of doing, so my PhD advisor, one of the parts of his PhD thesis was they built a formally verified web browser. So there's been talk about maybe doing a second one of these, like a round two. So that could be one of the target applications. Other talk is maybe like trying to port CompCert. So CompCert is a verified C compiler. And people like Airbus use this for writing C code for aeronautic software. The idea would be maybe to port a C compiler and try to get a C compiler running, sort of as a validation that the tooling works, that we could reduce proof burden, so on and so forth. But hopefully that will be forthcoming. You know, all of it, it's just like these projects are huge amounts of work and, and the time scales start to shift into years when you look at this stuff because it's someone has to spend a half man year to build every piece. And I mean, that's what COC has going for it right now. I, I think in a lot of ways is that there's so much investment in the tooling, like even if it, it is a little rough, you know, people put years and years and years and years of effort into building everything. And it sounds like there is opportunity as well for anybody listening that wants to get up and running, get in, is interested in this stuff to be able to help pick this out and maybe find some of those projects or be involved in one of the first projects to show off what is feasible doing this in the real world. I think one part for us too is that I felt this way about Rust is like getting all, like even if all the tooling is sort of roughly laid in place, just pushing on the tooling and having people who can build like even editor modes is super valuable. So like even if you feel like you don't have anything to contribute, 
to start, you know, like you probably do because there's so much coding that needs to be done. And like, not all of it is like mathy with Greek symbols or whatever. A lot of the lean hacking that I've done is just like raw C++ stuff. Like I wrote like a dynamic linking library for like pulling in external, you know, like if you want to implement file system primitives in C++ or something or Haskell, I implemented an FFI that allows you to, to load these into the virtual machine and compile them and do all this stuff. And a lot of that was just like low-level hacking, like reading DYLD's manual and like figuring out the right options and getting symbols hooked up. And you know, I've been working in the editor mode. I'm writing JavaScript. So I think that if anyone wants to come hack on that stuff, it would be super fun to have some collaborators and, you know, you could have a lot of influence on the way things are designed or like the doc tool. I started working, Leo and I have started hacking on a doc tool too, just to make things a little bit better. And that's going to need a lot of work. And there's a lot of probably interesting design decisions to make. So we covered a lot. And I mean, a lot. We went kind of all over the place with this common threads. But is there anything we left out that you think the audience should at least be aware of before we end this episode? No, I, th- I hope we covered some interesting stuff. I think that's it. I mean, my main thing is just walk- want to work on cool stuff and new systems programming style things. So if people are more interested, they can feel free to contact me. And I'm, I'm always happy to chat if someone wants to send me an email or Twitter or a message or something. And you mentioned Popple, but is there any other upcoming appearances or things that you're going to be going to that people can find you or find out more if they're going there as well? So there's nothing planned yet. I would kind of like once we stabilize a little bit. So like once we release uh, what we've been calling Lean 3, when Lean 3 is released, I would like to go give like a no theorem proving at all, just programming or like more programming focused talk somewhere. I'm not sure where the right place to do that is these days. It might be like Strange Loop or something. I, th- I think it could be kind of fun. I think the right thing is just building materials like talks, especially that are at the right level to get people interested. Because uh, I think otherwise it's it's a little uh, dense and can be hard to uh, digest in a single sitting. And then where can people find you online to follow along with your research as it goes along and some of the other projects that you're involved with? Because I'm sure you link out and discuss what you're working on. So where can people track you down, figure out what's going on with you? You can find me at GitHub and I can, I can give you the link to the show notes, but um, it's just my first initial and my last name. You can find me on Twitter uh, and that has links to my website and, and everything else. But I mean, it's easy to even reach me by email, which is also jresh at cs.washington.edu. So I'm usually I'm pretty good about responding to that email. Uh, so if you want to just fire me an email or Twitter direct message or something, that works too. And I'll get those links added to the show notes and some of the links off those links as well. So people can go back to the show notes and find them easy instead of having to trace the links for themselves. All right. Awesome. I'd like to give Jane. Thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you for taking your time to join me today. I'm glad Aldebert recommended you and put you on the list. And it was very impressive. And you gave me a rundown of a bunch of other stuff like Rust and some of these other things that you've been working on tangentially and things that I didn't even know were out there, like your research projects for the fact that it might be possible to have provable embedded hardware via chips one day. So thanks for enlightening my world and broadening it and seeing what's possible. All right. Thanks. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.